This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. What is this racism anyway? Because it's not limited to white people, clearly. We need to take a deeper look at what's going on in the black community. I grew up in a neighborhood that was all racist. I had and still have lots of black friends. Growing up, my best friends, closest friends, were black and Puerto Rican throughout my life. And when people tell me it's unfair to have to show your picture ID to vote or sign something to vote because that's unfair to blacks, boy, that's a racist statement. You're telling me that someone who's black isn't capable of showing the same picture ID that I have to show not just to vote, but to get on an airplane? Why are they less capable than I am? And when we talk about that, we need to take a hard look. Leadership in this country is just on the wrong track. I mean, the wrong track overall. We have to re-examine all of this before we keep putting each one of these crimes in a different box that's politically convenient for one party or the other. We're just not thinking right. black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back he does a patriotic podcast called roll right radio his name is new york mike and welcome to the show this is roll right radio on new york mike i don't know how many times i've said it you put all this together you prepare <laughs> you do your show prep you know whether it's a radio show or a podcast and so many times, you're already, you have your topics picked out, you've got things to say, you've written things out, you have your notes, and then boom, something happens and everything else just becomes less important or not important at all. So we're going to talk about the tragic weekend, the tragedy in Buffalo. It did just blow up everything in its path, and we're going to get to it. I really had planned on talking about the trip. I mean, I'm leaving a week from today. I'm meeting Robert Patrick, and, and Robert is going to be away, as he often is. I believe he gets back on Sunday, and we're meeting Monday. So it's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be a hell of a trip. And, and there's so much going on. The trip to Washington, and this is the one year I would have really liked to have gotten there a few days early. Instead, we're going to be lucky to get in on Friday. I had hoped at least on Thursday, which is our normal time of arrival. But, you know, we're behind the eight ball. Uh, where I'm going to meet Robert in, um, in Arizona, and then I'm meeting Mark Novot, my buddy, in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. That's where. And then we're going to go from there to Arkansas, Fort Smith, and then to Knoxville and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the trip is laid out. And of course, just like what I just said about the podcast, day usually before we leave, you get a look at a 10-day weather forecast, and that can change everything. Well, sometimes that's a little crazy, maybe a little rough. But what happened Saturday in Buffalo was tragic, horrible. And it got me to thinking about it. Of course, it's easy to listen to the media, listen to radio, watch TV. It's clearly a horrible thing. We're talking about 10 people killed, each and every one of those lives. A tragedy. And of course, the first thing everybody says, and it was racially motivated. There is no question. Do we put this all in and lump it into white supremacy? There's a certain thing that is being said. When you talk about white supremacy, you're also inevitably, you just have to be talking about the black experience in America being horrible, terrible, the suppression 
of the black lives, their inability to live better lives because of white supremacy. That's what they say. And, and it's unfair. It's not right. Man, think about it. What is it about an idiot, a mentally whacked out horror story, a terrorist, whatever you want to call it? Why is it that when this creep, when this mental maniac creep, 18 years old, who, by the way, has a history of mental illness, when he was 17, he threatened his high school class. I mean, it's not like it was a secret. And how many times do we find out that the authorities knew, that people knew? I mean, what about his parents? What about his teachers? What about his school? But what, what about the authorities? They kept him for a day and a half under observations. And then he's able to buy a weapon? Where are the laws? And what good are the laws? If you're going to allow somebody who's mentally deranged, I mean, this is it's on paper, it's known. He was mentally deranged and he was able to buy a gun. And then you're going to lump him into this white supremacist category as if he's going to fit neatly into some box when his manifesto. Now, I didn't read all of it, but what I've heard, it's a manifesto. Sounds like Hitler's Mein Kampf, something that lays out some new world order that somebody's thinking about. A, this guy just spewed hate for everybody. He's an equal opportunity hater. I mean, they say anti-Semitic. He hated Jews. He hated blacks. He, he hated Christians. He hated conservatives. For what I've seen of it and heard of it in drips and drabs, even the drips and the drabs were enough to see that this guy was not some organized kind of a manifesto of this is the direction that we need to be going in. He just spewed hate. And it was clear to me that if they had him for a day and a half, if people have been observing him, he didn't keep this a secret. This guy just vents his feelings, his hate for everybody. So I'm not blaming other people. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that you had the black supremacist of whatever you, if you want to call them that, supremacist. You got white, you got black, you got Asian. I don't know what other supremacist categories there are. But the black supremacist that ran over how many people? I think 60 people were in the hospital. Six were killed in Waukesha. That was just a few months back. What was it? After Christmas? At a Christmas parade? I didn't hear this hue and cry to, you know, end all black supremacy. By the way, it wasn't much over a month ago. This guy, Frank James, does that name ring a bell? Frank James, that was the subway shooter. When they looked at what this guy was saying all over Twitter and wherever else, the hatred for white people. These two guys, the Walker Show guy and the Frank James guy, just hated white people. So why is it that when a white guy comes into a black neighborhood and kills 10 people, you're going to blame every white organization or every organization or whatever. What makes some organization a white supremacist group? What is this racism anyway? Because it's not limited to white people, clearly. And it's not limited to black people. We had yesterday, an Asian guy went into a Presbyterian church in Laguna Woods right up here in Orange County, California, and shot the place up, killed one person, shot five others, and then he was tackled by the congregants and hogtied. That's what they said, hogtied, and held until the cops came. So he was a hater. Who did he hate? Was he a racist? What's all this racism? What is racism? Who hates who? Anti-Semitism, is that a separate category of racism. Some idiot professor, by the way, on TV 
I saw this morning. He said it all started when whites became a minority around 2016, I think he said. Yeah, right. Now, what about those people that hate the LGBTQs? The What about the hell Pol Well, I remember the Pollock jokes. Oh, yeah. I mean, people seem to hate them. No one should be picked on. I get it. No one should be picked on. But, you know, we got to differentiate when everything becomes a hate thing. Yeah, this, this guy, this hating, disgusting mental case goes out and kills 10 people and targeted a black neighborhood. Clearly, he hated black people. But when we also treat people that say things, it seems like we put them in the same category in their words. What happened to sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me? Are we putting words in the same category as actions? We got to decide what's happening here. What is racism and what is just a deranged mental case going out into the world, whether they're the black guy in Wisconsin, the black subway shooter, or this white guy. These are all people consumed with hate. And it seems to me most people who are consumed with this hate they hate themselves. They hate their lives. I, I don't want to say killing 10 people is a, a call for help. But these people are sick. And we need to understand better than just a catchphrase of a white supremacist or a black national or whatever they're called. I mean, what is it? And especially, we need to take a deeper look at what's going on in the black community. I'm tired. I grew up in a neighborhood that was all racist. I had, and still have, lots of black friends. And when I was a kid growing up, my best friends, closest friends, were black and Puerto Rican throughout my life. And when people tell me that it's unfair to have to show your picture ID to vote or sign something to vote, because that's unfair to blacks. Boy, that's a racist statement. You're telling me that someone who's black isn't capable of showing the same picture ID that I have to show, not just to vote, but to get on an airplane, to do so many things today. Why are they less capable than I am? And when we talk about that, we need to take a hard look. Leadership in this country is just on the wrong track. I mean the wrong track overall. We have to re-examine all of this before we keep putting each one of these crimes, and it's a crime. They're crimes. Murder, it's a crime. But we put each one in a different box that's politically convenient for one party or the other. Mostly, it's for the left. But overall, however you view it, we're just not thinking right. Well, at the same time that we're going into this tragedy, this tragedy, the news every day is about this possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. The abortion issue comes up. When I think of the abortion issue, I can't help but thinking about the fact that over a million abortions a year and a million abortion, a million a year. So for the last 50 years, 49 years, whatever, of, of Roe v. Wade, we're talking over 60 million abortions. And just so you know, if you don't know, 40% of the babies that have been abortions are black babies. So now let's talk about eugenics. The reason Margaret Sanger created Planned Parenthood? Now, I'm not here, and I've said this before, and clearly, I'm not here to make abortion illegal overall. But you've got to put limits on things. Yeah, sure, rape, incest, the life of the mother. But, you know, this whole idea 
started with eugenics. Eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the encourage of heritable characteristics that are desirable. It's kind of like the way we breed dogs. That's what eugenics is. The word was coined, I think it was around 1883, it was influenced by Charles Darwin, who was actually his cousin, controlling selective breeding. That's actually the words. Yes, breeding. It was developed as a method of improving the human race. It was discredited in the 20th century as uh, unscientific and racially biased because after the Nazis adopted its doctrines to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minorities, they had the Human Genome Project screening for genomes that would influence parental setting leadership to societal pressure to terminate pregnancies where the fetus is at risk for genetic disorders such as Down syndrome and spinal bifida. Look, that's not me. I looked this stuff up, and this is what's read. You know, we're talking about the Virginia Racial Integrity Act of 1924. It was overturned by SCOTUS in 1967, but that was what the, the act was the Human Genome Project. So, in other words, what they were trying to do was mass sterilization and abortions. And by the way, I mean, it seems like, yeah, you can't say mass sterilization, even though we've had it in this country, but abortion seems to be working. When you're talking about 60 million abortions in 49 years, we need to better understand what abortion on demand is doing, what happened to safe, legal, and rare, and why promote and encourage a practice based on eugenics. So you've got to look at it. 40% of all the abortions since 1973 have been black babies. What Margaret Sanger set out to do is being done. I mean, Blacks in America represent less than 14% of the population. It's just wrong. So we had this horrible weekend. We see everything that's going on. We see the hatred. And then we react because of the lives taken. You have to look at everything. You have to look at the whole. At some point, leadership in this country has got to step back and get away from the politics of it. Get away from putting everything to a, a box that works for their political, you know, whatever, to the, the get election, to get power, to get more authority, to get whatever. Progress is the suppressed story of race and race relations over the past half century. So it's news that more than 40% of blacks now consider themselves members of the middle class. And by the way, that was 20 years ago, okay? So would you think that over 40% members of the middle class, that's what they think of themselves. 42% of blacks own their own homes, and that rises to 75% if we just look at black married couples. Black two-parent families earn only 13% less, and I think it's 11% by now. It's not like they're earning half of those who are white. Almost a third of the black population, by the way, lives in the suburbs. Because these are facts in the view of much of the public. Most of the public assume Blacks live in ghettos, often in high-rise public housing projects. Crime and the welfare check are seen as their main source of income. That's their views. The stereotype crosses racial lines, so blacks are even more prone to exaggerate the extent to which blacks are trapped in inner-city poverty. At Gallup poll in the 90s, one-fifth of whites and one-half of blacks 
said at least three of every four blacks were impoverished urban residents. But in reality, blacks who consider themselves middle class outnumber those with income below the poverty line by a wide margin. You know, you talk about poverty lines. It's interesting to me that in the 70s, it was a revelation to me that about 10% of Jews in New York lived below the poverty line. And when I was starting to read about all this, to try to understand what do we really need to do in this country if we want equality or coming close to it, is understand how to get people above the poverty line. The Jews in New York at 10% in the 70s, and I remember that, it's now 16% who live below the poverty line. So for Jews, it's going the other way. People don't think about these things. People just think, oh, it's white supremacist, it's anti-Semitic, it's black supremacist, it's whatever. We need to get a better understanding of what's going on in our lives, within our culture. The middle class is growing. 50 years ago, most blacks truly were trapped in poverty, though they didn't live in the inner cities in the 40s. Most blacks lived in the South. That's where it was. And they lived on the land as laborers and sharecroppers. Only one in eight owned the land on which they worked. Five percent nationally worked in non-manual white-collar work of any kind. Six of ten black women were household servants. The Great Migration to the North after World War II, which lasted into the 60s and by the 2000s, more than 30% of black men and 60% of black women hold white-collar jobs. In 1970, 2.2% of American doctors were black. And by 2000, it was 4.5%. 4.5% of American doctors are black. The biggest gains, by the way, were pre-1970, and it's slowed appreciatively since then although the number of black college professors more than doubled between 1970 and 1990. Doctors grew three times. Black engineers quadrupled in the same time frame, and the number of black attorneys increased by six times. That doesn't reflect the fact that professional schools and colleges changed admission policy and provided financial aid, sometimes to blacks whose academic records were much weaker than many white and Asians whose applications were turned down. But these professionals make up a fraction of the total black middle class, and their numbers would have grown without the preferences. I'm reading from a Brookings study. This is what I've been looking at, and I've been looking at before this tragedy hit, because I'm trying to understand my country, my world, this culture. I've been around a long time. And you got to try it at least. Our leaders need to try it. Instead of just leading with these bumper sticker slogans, try to come up with something that makes sense. We're not stupid people. We'll understand this stuff. The trends in education and the educational disparities today when blacks and white students graduate high school at similar rates, but blacks are far behind in critical skills like math and reading comprehension. Basically, cognitive skills in reading, English, science, math, and social studies. And why? Well, I know that, and, and again, nobody has specific answers because these questions haven't been what people are focused on. They're focused on just calling people names calling everybody a white nationalist, a white supremacist. They're not trying to understand, look, we all want all Americans to rise. A rising tide raises all boats, whether it's blacks, Puerto Ricans, Polacks, Jews. It doesn't matter. Asians, we're all better off when everybody's ability to live good, when everybody's ability to raise their lifestyle is better. And there's just no 
question about it, that education is the key. And what are we doing about increasing the ability of, and I, you know, everybody says inner city kids. It's true. There's a lot of truth to that because we look at the inner city in Chicago, the inner city in New York and Baltimore, and there's a lot of black kids there. But there's black kids are everywhere. And are, 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 they, are they denied this level of education everywhere? What has affirmative action really accomplished? Did they really need it? Because I'm telling you, everything I read, and I've read other stuff, says the same things. That the black middle class, everything I read before, the amount of doctors and lawyers and, and engineers, they would have grown and probably better without these racial preferences. We don't need artificial gimmicks to create a better life for Americans, whether they're black, whether they're Hispanic, whatever they are. The trends in this educational disparities, and especially when everybody's graduating high school at similar rates, they're not all good, but they're similar. But the blacks are way behind in critical skills. And we're talking about, again, math, reading comprehension. And why is that? There are several suggestions. I'm just paraphrasing. The increased violence and disorder of inner-city lives that came with the drug-related gang wars in the 1980s had something to do with the reversal of the black educational progress. Because... There was a lot of progress being made. Chaos in the streets and within schools affects learning inside and outside the classroom. In addition, an educational culture that increasingly turns teachers into guides, guides that help children explore whatever interests they may have. It definitely affected black academic performance as well. Educational critic E.D. Hirsch Jr. points out, and I'm quoting him, the deep aversion to and contempt for factual knowledge that pervades the thinking of American educators means the students fail to build the intellectual capital that's the foundation of all further learning that will be especially true of those students who come to school most academically disadvantaged, those whose homes are not, in effect, an additional school. In other words, kids that come home don't have a home environment where their studies continue. When my kids came home from school, I, I talked to them, what did you learn this week? What did you learn today? They come home and say, oh, I got an A in this or a B. What did you learn? We talked about it. So I don't know, I can't say most houses, and I'm not going to make any racial differences between some. I'm, I don't know what those differences are. But those whose homes are not an additional school, the deficiencies of American education hit hardest those most in need of education. And yet, in the name of racial sensitivity, Advocates for minority students too often dismiss both common academic standards and standardized tests as culturally biased and judgmental. It's the same thing as I said before about needing a, a picture ID, a driver's license to vote. It's like academic standards, standardized tests. They say they're culturally biased and judgmental. When this became the norm when we do away with testing of basic skills to correct the problems we've inflicted on ourselves, which was said by Christopher Edley Jr., Clinton's point man on affirmative action. In other words, when our standards are lowered, the disparity in cognitive skills becomes less evident because it's harder to correct. And you don't see it as much. If you take away the testing, 
if you lower the standards, you're just not going to see those differences. You're going to bring everybody down to a level where they could look like they're doing okay, but they're not doing okay. They're not developing those cognitive skills that are going to help. You know, education, it's not learning about everything. It's learning how to learn. It's learning how to look things up. It's learning how to investigate where we are, who we are. It's learning how to go to a library and look things up. It's learning how to learn. And closing that skills gap is the first task if black advancement is to continue at its once fast pace. And it was on a fast pace. On the map, I love some of these quotes. And, and I believe this is Thurgood Marshall. On the map of racial progress, education is the name of almost every road. Raise the level of black educational performance and the gap in college education rates in the attendance at selective professional schools and the gap in the earnings is likely to close as well. With educational parity, the whole issue of racial preference disappears. Black progress over the last half century has been impressive. Conventional wisdom notwithstanding, yet the nation has many miles to go on the road to true racial equity. This is what Thurgood Marshall said in 1992. I wish I could say that racism and prejudice were only distant memories. But as I look around, I see that even educated whites and African Americans have lost hope in equality. Notice he didn't say equity. Equality. A year before, The Economist magazine in 91 reported that the problem of race is one of shattered dreams. In fact, all hope has not been lost, and shattered was much too strong a word, but in the 60s, the civil rights community failed to realize how tough the voyage would be. Gallup found a sharp decline in optimism since 1980. This progress, by most measures, seemingly so clear, is viewed as an illusion the sort of fantasy to which intellectuals are particularly prone. But the ahistorical sense of nothing gained is in itself bad news. Pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If all our efforts as a nation to resolve this American dilemma, if all our efforts have been in vain, if we've been spinning our wheels in the rut of ubiquitous and permanent racism, as many argue, then racial equity is a hopeless task, an unattainable ideal. If both blacks and whites understand and celebrate the gains of the past, however, we will move forward with the optimum insight and energy that further progress surely demands. You know, I wasn't prepared to go into this. It's something I wanted to do and something I've been looking at and reading about for a long time now. And I, I really meant to get into all this maybe after the summer when the riding season slows down a little bit. We get back from Sturgis and wherever else we're going to go. Usually September, like Labor Day, go to Colorado. And so I try to plan ahead what topics I'm going to pick out and, and work on. And I was reading some things, and then this came up Saturday, and I just really thought about it. And one of my real close, I have so many friends who are black, and it's been a rough couple of years since this whole George Floyd thing occurred. You know, the Black Lives Matter thing came up. And I talk to my black friends, and I go, hey, how you doing? And then we go sideways. You know, it's like, well, Black Lives Matter, well, these cops are killing black kids. Well, they're not. And Black Lives Matter is a communist organization. It's not about blacks at all. It's using what's going on in the black community. It's fanning the fires 
that say that white cops are killing black people. I've talked enough about that in the last year. It doesn't exist. It's not anything close to what this left wing of the country is trying to make it out to be. And blacks are killing blacks at a huge rate all over the country. All these quote-unquote inner-city Chicago and New York and, and everywhere else. Look what's going on in Seattle and Minneapolis and, and everywhere. So I'm talking to friends and they come, things are coming up. What happened in 1980 and 90? And, oh, well, yeah, they're better now. But what happened in 1990? My stuff was printed in these magazines, but they didn't publish my face because why? Because I'm like, oh, they do now. Yeah, well, that was in 1998 or 2005 or 10. But what happened back then? That was pure race. You know what? We've progressed. We keep on progressing. Things get a lot better. Maybe it's not fast enough. It never is. But you look back. I look back when I was a kid and Jackie Robinson came to the Dodgers. We had Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, Tank Aaron. I mean, these are heroes. You go to ball games now, football games, basketball, all these kids, I don't care what color they are, they're wearing the jerseys of all their heroes, all, all their heroes. I don't know what the color corresponds to the number. <laughs> I don't follow stuff that close. But I know that when I look at a baseball diamond or a football field, I'm seeing a lot of black faces. And I'm not saying that because that demonstrates, oh, they've arrived, they're doing so much better. No. What that demonstrates is who the kids in America look up to as their heroes. That's what they are. And so take that position. Exploit that position. Celebrate that. Accept that as something that's really good. Don't use it as a way to say things are so terrible and everything is so bad and everything, everything is getting better and it'll keep on getting better. If you give it that sense of optimism and real hope and the belief, if you believe it's going to get better, it's going to. And if you believe it's not going to get better, it won't. And we seem to be focused on everything that's not getting better. Are we not supposed to be tremendously upset just as a nation about what happened in Buffalo on Saturday? Of course we are. But if we don't understand how to make black lives better, if we don't really have the leaders that are going to find the formula, find the path, find the way to get there, if they're just going to throw rocks at the handful of white idiots who call themselves whatever, supremacists, KKKs, celebrate Nazis, what do you think that's a... A huge underground, like, un, you know, undercurrent of the white population. What are you, out of your minds? That's not what it's about. And by the way, I know I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Who's sitting here and looking at these statistics and not looking and saying, what about this anti-Semitism? Does that not count when they shoot up synagogues? When you see that something like 60% of the hate crimes are focused on are against Jews. By the way, there's these blacks that hate Jews. Yeah, the one that always comes to my mind, Louis Farrakhan. Remember when Jesse Jackson called New York Town? <laughs> That's a sneak peek into what's going on in his brain. Well, of course. He gets a lot of donors, and I'm sure a lot of donors are Jews. Well, not the 16% of Jews in Town who are living under the level of poverty, making less than 30000 a year. Yeah, how many are going hungry? How bad is that situation? We don't see that. We don't see that because I don't think most Jews go around and wave that flag of being disparaged. Oh, help us. I mean, you see that on television, 
the Holocaust survivors in Ukraine, there's legitimacy in that. And there's probably some legitimacy over here. But we'd rather focus and talk about accomplishments, talk about success stories, because those are the stories that are going to encourage the youth of today to be the successful business people and iron workers and doctors and lawyers and plumbers and electricians of tomorrow. You want to motivate. You want to inspire people to great heights. You don't want to tell them everything's an obstacle. You're not going to make it because you're black. You don't want to tell them that it's hopeless. And that's what they're saying. That's what The Economist magazine said when they reported that race is an issue of shattered dreams. All hope is gone. Shattered dreams. What, are you kidding me? This is what you want to put out there? This is what this, you know, 10-year-old kid who goes to school, this is what his parents are looking at when he comes home? The parents are looking at their kids. What, what am I going to tell this kid? Oh, yeah, you could be anything you want in America. No, you're black. You can't. Is that the message? Well, that's the message that they're sending. I'm not saying that's as horrible as a kid driving three hours to shoot every black person he could find. No, it's not as horrible. But in the long term, it may be a lot more damaging. It may be something that's condemning the black Americans, our fellow Americans, from moving ahead in this world, from encouraging and inspiring them. In spite of all that, there's still a growing black middle class if four and a half, and I think today it's a little more, 5% of every doctor in America is black. That says a lot. I don't know what percent of whites are doctors or Asians are doctors. <laughs> I can speak from my own experience. It seems like almost all the oncologists that I've been dealing with <laughs> seem to come from India at some point in their lives are, are of Indian Descent, but I'm just saying that there's more than just hope. There's reality. There's reality that we're going to start. We have to find some leaders who will say, wait, this is a problem that we can unravel. We can understand. Let's get in there. Let's study this problem. Every road on the path to success for everybody is education. If we know that, are you really going to lower the standards by paying for everybody's college loans? You really think that helps? That lowers the value. That doesn't increase the value. There's good reason to give and to award scholarships for performance. There's good reason to offer financial aid. There's good reason and there's good things that can be done to make the path for education more accessible for more people of every race. And we should be celebrating that and looking for ways to do that. And there's also good reason to criticize the educational system in this country, the teachers' unions that want to just teach critical race theory, really? The 1619 Project? What in the world is that all about? Teaching kids that everything started with slavery and racism, and you're just stuck in a country that's founded the foundation of America is racist? Racist, by the way. Not racist against Jews, not racist against Asians, or racist against blacks. It's all targeting blacks. It's all creating pessimism. It's all taking away hope in that black community. You know, wasn't it Obama who ran for the presidency on this hope thing? Why are you taking away that hope for black kids in America? By saying these things, by promoting these things. What you need to promote in our schools 
especially in our schools, is the learning of the basic, the elementary, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. It's as simple as that. Get back to the basics. Teach these kids how to read and reading comprehension and understanding, understanding English literature. English literature gives people that when you learn that, you learn where we came from, how we evolved, the plays of Shakespeare. And, I mean, it, it makes you appreciate the genius of writers. People should learn to appreciate that, to understand that, to have passion. Not everybody will, but a lot of people will if they're taught in school how brilliant Shakespeare was and some of these other writers. They'll have a passion to go to the library, take out books to read, to study, to better themselves. And when they better themselves, they're bettering all of us. To repeat myself, a rising tide raises all boats. And every citizen, we should all be working towards better education of every citizen. And is that the best I can do? In reaction to what happened to Buffalo, you're damn right it is. Yeah, you're damn right it is. I want to do everything I can in fairness to all my friends. The kids I grew up with in Brooklyn, the guys I was stationed with, the friends I've had over a lifetime. Because they're my friends. They're people that are part of the life that I've lived. And I'm not doing anything for me or my family, if I'm not advocating for the best for each and every one of them, because they are just as much a part of my life as they are a part of your life. And if we're going to keep on just, you know, calling people names and putting people in these boxes as white supremacists, oh, yeah, you get rid of white supremacy and you're going to save the country. Oh, that's going to. That's going to help a lot. Well, what are you going to do about the black supremacists? What are you going to do about the Asian that went in and shot up the Presbyterian church? I mean, what are you going to do about all the non-whites who commit all these crimes? Why would you sit there, America, and allow these leaders of this country to lead us in this kind of direction? I know Biden is going to Buffalo on Tuesday, and he should. It's the right thing to do. He should have went to Waukesha. That would have been the right thing to do. He should have went to New York. That would have been the right thing to do. That's what a real president does. He doesn't pick and choose which tragedy. He's going to try to build people up and build their spirits. And is he going to do that? Or is he just going to talk about this racist nation? and the white supremacists, which just casts aspersion on every white person. And that, yeah, if you're some liberal Democrat, you think you're not showered with the same label, it labels every white person as a person that is a potential hater of every black person. It's ridiculous. This is not the way this country should be led. This is not the way we should react to these horror stories, these sad, terrible incidents, these tragedies. What we should keep on doing is keep on working to better ourselves, better our country, better our countrymen, every one of us, every color, every creed, from wherever they came from. I know I did not talk about the Ukraine, that vote for 40 billion. I didn't talk about Sweden going into NATO, and I wanted to. But I, I am going to say one thing. It's not that I'm not a fan of Tucker Carlson. I like his show. But I disagree with that guy a lot. I really do. Now, he goes off about this stuff. But he doesn't give me the solutions that I want to hear. If I was in Congress, I probably would not vote to give $40 billion to the Ukraine. But what I would be doing, I'd be trying to get us to negotiate because NATO needs to pay their fair share. And why not grow NATO? Oh, is he worried about offending Putin? Come on. I think Putin stepped in it. 
this invasion of Ukraine has not gone well for Putin, and we need to take advantage of it as much as we can. Yes, it is a proxy war. There's no question about it. And we don't want to join in. But if Russia is going to be, they're going down. This is a real problem for them. It's a real problem for Putin. And we should be happy about that. We should help that. And him and Tulsi Gabbard, I like them both. But I don't agree with both of them about a lot of things. By the way, Tulsi was saying how she doesn't want to call people names. We shouldn't be calling people names. And there's Tucker saying the same thing. And <laughs> I'm not saying it's funny, but if you're going to say you don't think Congress should be calling people names, well, then don't call a congressman the eyepatch McCain guy, okay? We know who you're talking about, and that's just not right, Tucker. So I wanted to talk about that. The next podcast, that's going to be the only one I'm going to be doing at home here or any place because I'll be on the road. So I'll be doing the podcast, but it's all going to be spontaneous. <laughs> I'm just going to say things because that's what I do on, when I'm on the road. So we'll be on the road. We'll be riding. You know, when, when I do a podcast, I tend to spend a few hours of show prep. I will not be doing that. Yeah, a little bit. Don't get me wrong. It won't be all spitballing. Don't, yeah, but that's it. So I got one more before I leave. And there's things I want to say especially about my friend Robert Patrick, because when we go to D.C., Robert's going to be making speeches at TAPS. And I'll, I'll tell you about that organization. If you don't know, it's fantastic. And he's going to be making a speech there. And I'm sure he's going to be speaking at Rolling to Remember. I want to talk about that and about Robert and why his making the speeches is so particularly special and unique. So I'm New York Mike. This is Roll Right Radio, and I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.